0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is the first episode of All We Mean, a new focus of the podcast. All We Mean is both discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning of it or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act as much as it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life, our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of All We Mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is, appropriately enough, meaning itself. And for that, I'm going to read an abridged excerpt from pages 11 and 12 of the book Making Sense by Bill Cope and Mary Colanzes, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. But first, to my guests, I welcome Bill Cope and Mary Colanzes, the authors themselves, both professors at the University of Illinois. Hi to both of you. Welcome
2: to All We Mean. (laughs)
3: Hello. (laughs) Lovely to be with you.
2: Yeah, hello to everybody, and I'm very pleased to be here. Well,
1: great. Happy to have both of you here today. So to our topic, which is meaning, the thing itself. And to get us started, I'm going to read this slightly abridged excerpt from your own book, Making Sense, We make meaning as an integral part of our experience of life, as we see things, feel things, understand things, express things, plan things, and act in ways that could have effect. Meaning is in one moment contemplative. We see, hear, and feel meanings in our encounters in the natural and human historical worlds. In the human world, in other moments, meanings animate our actions. We mean to do things in our lives and in the world. Then sometimes we do them meaningfully or thoughtlessly, in which case there is meaning even in the thoughtlessness. We perform acts of meaning. To mean is also to act. Meaning is how we make sense and act sensibly. This meaning happens in history and circumstances that are always changing, always different, given our nature as a species that is as much self-made as it is a creature of natural history. Meaning can manifest itself in a variety of forms, text, image, space, object, body, sound, speech. These are, if you like, the means by which meaning is made. These forms are closely interwoven, and yet each meaning form is constituted in a relatively discrete system as well. Patterns of meaning in text, for instance, are distinct and different from patterns of meaning in image. From one meaning form to another, the potentials for meaning are different in some significant ways. These differences are also the reason why we often overlay and juxtapose forms, for instance, image with text, because the two can reinforce each other to make a shared message, each contributing something that complements the other and the combined effort. Now, every act and artifact of meaning, no matter what its form or patterns of multimodal combination, always express meaning simultaneously in five ways. Reference, agency, structure, context, interest. These are the kinds of use to which any meaning can be put. They are the perspectives from which to analyze and interpret meaning. Take this example. We type out for you this line, the mountains loom large. You can read that. Or you can look at a photo that one of us took. It's the same mountains that we mean, but the form of that meaning is different. The text and the image may be different in form, but the meaning function is shared. For instance, we might highlight the function of reference, these are mountains. Or we might discuss all four of the other functions at work in the meaning of these mountains. Agency, that is, for example, how one of us in this in this case, Mary, relates to what's depicted in the photo. There in the center of the picture is the house where she was born. Next, structure. That is, for instance, the different ways the meaning is arranged in image compared to text, say, the patterning of colors in the one, but in the other the horizontal lines of alphabetical symbols. Third, context. That is, for example, the time and the place that the photo was shot. Lastly, interest, that is, for example, why we've decided to show you the picture or to hand you the text to read. All of these functions are there, and every act of meaning always, inevitably. Okay, so what then about this there is always meaning, it's just unavoidable? Is this a more abstract way of the rhetorician's belief that, well, since every word has effect, every word is then meaningful? Or well, maybe to just take another example, something from behavioral economics, like decision architecture, where, for example, no matter how a building is laid out, it will make people's movement and stasis mean somehow.
3: Right. Well, uh, being human means uh, doing things in the world, and doing things in the world requires purposeful meaning. Um, but you, you, you are right when you um, read out that we said that meaning has always been uh, an aspect of human activity. Um, Some 20 years ago, however, we predicted uh, that you know, uh, meaning is um, synesthetic, that means from the moment babies are born, they're touching things, they're looking things, they're dancing, they're, you know, they're using multiple ways to make meaning. However, we predicted that formal meaning making, particularly in education systems and in work and every other realm, was going to be impacted profoundly by the digital. Now, we're in that fully uh, in an extensive kind of way, and our case was that we didn't have a grammar, we didn't have a way of understanding how multimodality is now, you know, drench is drenching every aspect of how we make meaning for family uh, communication, for education, for work purposes, and we don't understand how the parts work together. We don't understand how it impact how this kind of digital meaning and the multi multimodality involves affects other human beings and we felt in writing these two volumes that we one had to kind of understand uh, the philosophical and historical transitions that have occurred around meaning Right? Um, when I was a young girl at school, uh, meaning was what was in textbooks and what the teacher said to you, you know, and it was, or, or what the parents said to you uh, in, in in sound and text. But now, uh, as we know, children are being born in a very different kind of digital environment uh, where they get meaning from uh, images and sound and uh, devices and strangers that are a million miles away. It's a very different moment and we don't have the tools to understand it properly. And that's what these two volumes are about, meaning as human practice and meaning in terms of the, uh, the technological aspects that make it effective, that make it powerful, either positively or negatively
2: so you know this idea of meaning is a kind of a a counterpoint to uh, what we think has kind of been the fetishization of written text for a long time so it's not the written text isn't important it's still incredibly important Uh, and in fact another whole story which we can tell another time is it's become incredibly important, again, through generative AI, which operates essentially from text, but that's a separate story. But let's go back um, that, you know, what Mary was just talking about was uh, an increasing emphasis on meanings which are not simply textual. But the reason why that's a counterpoint, we need to go back into kind of human history a bit. um, And that is that, that a certain form of power accrued to people who had tools of literacy. And this really begins with uh, with human inequality. So human inequality, on a systematic scale, really only begins four or five thousand years ago, and it happens at the at the moment of writing. So in Mesopotamia, the the, the remaining bits of writing which we found are accountancy lists, and they're done by an elite. They're, they're people who are connected with relatively wealthy people who are collecting taxes or collecting um, money from people who are with whom they're working, um, and literacy then becomes a tool of an elite. And Claude Lévy-Strauss, the great French um, uh, anthropologist, you know, has a wonderful quote, um, which says that, you know, the beginning of inequality um, is to some extent fueled by writing. Fast forward into modern times, um, only a a few people were able to be literate, and these are people connected with um, centres of power. Um, And then uh, when literacy happens on a broader scale, it doesn't necessarily produce democracy at all. There are kind of levels of literacy where, you know, you don't do so well at school based on literacy and, you know, the three R's, reading, writing and arithmetic. Well, you know, actually arithmetic is a form of literacy as well in one definition. So these become things where you sort society into its unequal, um, uh, its unequal uh, strata. Right, so this is what modernity brings. Then moving, then the, the the arrival of the digital world, in some senses, is deeply disruptive. It's deeply, it disrupts the privilege of written text uh, that written text has in society, and and um, it then um, brings to the fore the need to think. Well, look, our forms of expression are not you know, we shouldn't be privileging written text in this. And most importantly, what's very interesting is the connection in the same space of different forms of meaning increasingly in digital media.
3: But even having said that, Bill, uh, the multimodality of the moment through the digital is still controlled by elites. We think it's ours, we think it's public, we think we're consumers and producers in this space, but the architecture, Uh, that uh, allows us to to use multimodality is controlled by a handful of uh, individuals who invented this stuff and who control it as a business so we're still caught with elites playing such powerful roles that's why it's really important to understand how this Multimodality works as well as we understood how oracy and literacy works,
2: and we call that interest.
3: And we call that
1: interest. How yeah, do I, do yeah. That I, I have to. I have to jump in uh, if for for uh, for one point there because I mean, all that you're saying there about inequality as we experience it today, um, these big. Uh, conglomerates who control so much of the internet and so much of the technology and the direction that's developing in, but but our topic remains at least for today. What exactly is meaning? And and a lot of what you were saying there, Bill. For instance, about literacy and text and this privileging in these last five thousand years. What struck me was it's a very short time. And if we think of speech, which is another form. That 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 went on as far as we know for tens of thousands of years ahead of that. So maybe we can learn something about meaning by looking more closely at text and figuring out what, as a formal technology, and I use formal there in the sense that you use it in the book as a form, um, as a formal technology. What is it that text brings in? How does it mean such that we end up with such unequal societal um, outcomes?
3: Wait. It's also, you know, this word uh, meaning is associated with humans. And because we've we've gone a little further in talking about technology is because meaning is now ascribed to what the machine can do and what the digital can do. However, for humans, meaning involves intent. It involves purpose. It involves reflection. It revolves, um, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, moving backwards and forwards uh, from ideas. It involves creativity in powerful ways. And we have to understand the human aspect of meaning and the way it's reflected either whether it's in speech or hieroglyphics or um, paintings on the ground or on your body or or in in text. Uh, And we have a huge uh, uh, corpus now uh, in the digital that captures all of that and pretends that meaning is being made through the technology. I suppose that's why I think this moment is different from any other moment when we when we would have been talking about meaning and humans.
1: Yeah, but uh, does that mean that text, I, I'm sorry, just, want, just to throw in one more idea, Bill, and I do want to hear from you, but is, does that mean that there is potentially something inhuman about the form of text? I mean, not that it's not made by humans, but It separates from us in such a way that it can do things outside of our control.
3: Well, so does a stick. You know, when you pick up a stick as a tool, you know, to dig or to throw at an animal, you know, all of these things are artifacts of human creativity and they're associated with doing and acts of meaning. But you see, we think text is a holy grail because all of us, uh, the minute we go into formal education or so far into any formal business or enterprise, the uh, text has been key to how we manipulate and work in that space. But I think what Bill said earlier and what I've been trying to say is that's becoming now the province of the digital world that can be accessed by anybody by a few uh, prompts right? Uh, It's not creative, but everything that's ever been written or drawn or said is now in this corpus, it's in the digital world that we can access. Uh, It has all the biases and all the problems of the human world, of course, built into it. And we have to understand that difference. I think the questions we ask now about meaning uh, and the role that they play and the artifacts that produce them are dramatically different and confusing for a lot of people uh, right this minute. And we want to hang on, particularly universities and schools, they want to hang on to the text as somehow, as I said, this sacred thing where uh, this truth, or because it's been, you know, gone through a process of publication or uh, verification, and we're a bit anxious uh, that anything else might not give us the same level of confidence and validity as the written did in the past, even though uh, we could disagree or not or dislike or make different choices about the text. Uh, So I think that's what we're trying to say now. I mean, 20 years ago, we believed multimodality was gonna make a big difference to meaning making. Like a lot of people now just send pictures to each other, for example, rather than talking to each other. They're making meaning with those pictures, right? Through their Instagram or through their Facebook or, Uh, Rather than speaking, people don't pick up the phone anymore to telephone each other and use speech because that's regarded as invasive. It's better to send a text and wait. So the meaning-making tools we have now are broader and different and are changing us as humans in some powerful kinds of ways. And what we wanted to do with the two volumes is understand this moment, both in its technology and its effect on actions, right? And its effect on our humanity as well.
2: I want to track back to that question you asked though about uh, why meaning? Um, And apropos of the things that that Mary was just saying now, um, we wanted an overarching category, an overarching theme, something we want to look at, which was able to cross across all those forms of meaning. Right. Um, so, you know, there are all these forms. Text is a universe to itself and pictures are universe to yourselves. We put text in libraries and images in galleries and, you know, it, it goes on. You know, these are kind of institutionally different places as media. They're different. They're different types of media. They're different, tangibly different things. So if we're to actually see if we to analyze multimodality, we need a shared language that crosses all of those things. And the reason why we chose medium, just meaning, I mean, just as a heuristic, was we can ask the question of the picture, what's its meaning? How it mean? The text, what's its meaning? How does it mean? So in other words, um, meaning for us, that becomes a macro, uh, a macro side of analysis. Um, so that's, you know, there's also a kind of a, a pragmatic, methodological reason why we make meaning the focus
3: and a technological one now, because you can uh, create with the same tools, text, image, sound, right? You don't need separate tools to, to create uh, uh, meaning using those tools with the digital, with the computer, with the device. Little kids can do it, you know, brand new to the world. So we have to rethink uh, the power of the alphabetical literacy today. And how we can influence the world. Like, I I have an example. Um, Bill doesn't always like this example, but you remember the prison in Abergrave. Mind
2: you, this example is now ancient history. It's ancient history, but it's it's not news.
3: But it's Uh a good point, right? Uh, People knew what was happening in in that um, prison and the Red Cross had written a tome in perfect alphabetical literacy and had put it on the internet and everybody could read what was happening. And it had no impact on the world. Somebody went in there with a camera, and took a picture of a man that had a hood over their body and all these wires coming out. And that single picture moved Congress, moved presidents, moved the United Nations, moved people to act and say, what is happening there? now with these wars, you're seeing that whether it's TikTok or something else, people are producing visuals. Some of them are manufactured, entirely manufactured in their backyards. Some of them, you know, come from elsewhere, which are fake. But those visuals are the way in which people are communicating what's happening in, in the Middle East, what's happening in Ukraine. So for us in producing these volumes is how do we get people to understand that meaning is now so expanded uh, it, uh, formally and informally, uh, uh, it, and in uh, across all domains, all domains from the personal to the professional to the educational. And then, how do we understand how we um, deconstruct it and reconstruct it positively? How do we include it in uh, the repertoires of education across different disciplines? People have been uh, too slow in education, in particular, uh, to harness uh, the affordances of the digital in this very complex kind of way and to say, what does it mean for science? What does it mean for English? Uh, What does it mean for history? How are we using it? Uh, the, The schools and the university systems have been very slow, though you can see them using apps. But the apps that they're using are drill and kill. They're, they're pedagogically uh, more backward than the, the than the preacher in the classroom uh, because of this repetitive, fast-moving uh, drill and kill. It's a very different moment on every level that we can describe of meaning making for purposes. Right? Remember, meaning making has action and intent. So in every domain, every ecosystem, uh, we're seeing dramatically different possibilities and dramatically different dangers without a framework for understanding uh, technically or even um, uh, what's philosophically or ethically what it means.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: So I think what's coming out there and what, what both of you are saying is that as you make the point, right, meaning is a human production. It's, it's something that we do and it has effects in the real world. And that again continues to be something that's happening and then we do more with it. In this very abstract way, I guess what I'm trying to capture is For listeners who still might be asking themselves a little bit, okay, I can't quite get my hands on meaning. I mean, your last statement there, Mary, of there's purpose intent involved. Um, If we we bring that down into an example of, let's say, uh, yes, recent images in the news, uh, whether fake or real, it doesn't matter. But here we have an actual video. We've got images that are moving. There's then speech involved. And these are being taken up by some watcher and Mm -hmm. listener. So lots of different forms are being engaged with. And yet the meaning, where is the meaning in that? Or what is the meaning? Is it, let's say, because as I listen, I keep thinking, it sounds like a form of consciousness. It sounds like a state of consciousness.
2: Okay, so um, one of the things that we one of the dimensions of meaning that we outline is we have this notion of participation, right? So meaning is a participatory act. And there are kind of uh, three kind of stages or forms or sites of, 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 of participation. Um, the first one is representation, which is what I can do is I can make sense of the world to myself, right? And the way I do that is I move about in a space, I write a list, I write some notes, I talk to myself. Interesting thing is inner speech is very, very different from um, explicit open speech. Vygotsky brilliantly, brilliantly makes that point. Um, I, I can imagine something Um, in another thing which brilliantly Colin McGinn calls Mindsight. Um, So what I can do is I can use these resources in the world, the resources of seeing, the resources of writing, the resources of uh, objects and text and whatever, to make sense to myself without any communication. So that's the first form of participation, making sense of the world to myself. The second form of participation is making sense of the world to others. So I make an object which someone else uses. I, um, I uh, write a letter which somebody else reads. I take a picture which someone else sees. I put it on Instagram and a lot of people see it. So the other thing I can do which is very different from representation, by the way, the, the grammar of communication is very different from the grammar of representation, right? It's they're derivative of each other, but they're different. Um, and as I say, Vygotsky is one of the most brilliant people in characterising that. The third thing we do in the process of participation, this is meaning as participation, is interpretation. So the world is full of found objects, which other people have made, things that they've written, um, things that pictures that they've taken. And every time I, I pick one of those up, my meaning is never their meaning because I've lived in a different world, I've thought of things a different way, I'm a different time and place, and I can never make total sense of what they are. I can make partial sense of what they've said, But contrary to most theories of communication, it's not a matter of transmission. Claude Shannon was wrong, right? It's not a matter of transmission. It's a matter of interpretation. So one of our aspects of this meaning process is that these are um, active forms of participation and moving from representation to communication. I represent it, then I communicate it, and then someone else interprets it. Always involves what we call a transposition. It involves stuff where you can trace, uh, you can trace the provenance of a meaning, but at every point there's a transformation that's been going on.
3: And it doesn't mean there's been successful transfer of what was in your head and what is received by the interpreter and we are in that place now more and more more and more we are speaking to each other at cross purposes we are communicating as cross purposes we're more and more uh, because it's possible you know we weren't able to speak to somebody in you know a country far away Uh, we weren't able to speak to somebody at the other end of, of 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 the world we couldn't communicate like that before we had our community our family our school and whatever and it was kind of closer exchanged around those three components even if we didn't get exact um meaning transferred but now it's been the, the possibility of misinformation, the possibility of misinterpreting, the possibility of influencing around very personal kinds of things that are important to you and then having followers who believe in that influence. It's kind of a different moment and we have to understand meaning making now in a, a more complex way, and I, I would even go so far as to say in, in a dangerous way for humanity, because the possibilities that are there that are positive, that we can use to be more creative and you know to do things better, are also right this moment, given power relations and, and other issues like that, uh, are becoming uh, more out of control uh, to individuals, even to governments, and even to the corporations who make money at are creating platforms for people to make multimodal
1: meanings. Yeah, I mean, communication is uh, this this whole um, idea of participation, which which Bill has laid out there for us is extremely useful, I would say. I mean, it gives wonderful vocabulary for things that are really out there. You know, like what you're talking about, Mary, right now, I would say is is simply uh, a bloating, almost, or an expansion of communication beyond controllable means, and by control, I don't mean any instance or institution holding on to it, but that we have any control over the meaning that we're creating with it, or interpreting it from it, or whatever. Um, but but I I do want to circle back slightly, um, because what I was hearing when uh Bill you were you were giving this description of representation over into interpretation, was the dynamics so the interaction between, let's say, mental states and physical realities, or just generally the real and the ideal, which is a constant motif throughout both of your books. And it's it's, it's kind of the engine that's that's driving all this. And again, to bring us back to this idea of, well, what is meaning? Is it true to say that meaning is somehow found in between the two of those with both of those involved and there's a human behind it? Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah that's yes. true. And and um, uh, one of the things is um, meaning is also bigger than what you and I are meaning at the moment, right? And, and we, we have two notions. Um, so it's bigger than communication, it's bigger than the material world in a couple of sentences. Firstly, there are meanings in the material world which have as yet been undiscovered, right? So when we do fancy astronomy or when we do, you know, we keep on getting these pictures from the web telescope and whatever of things that have never been seen and therefore meant before, um, medical science, discover stuff. Um, so one, but that means there are actually imminent meanings which were as yet undiscovered. So in all um,
3: creativity.
2: Yeah, and it's human action which yeah. which does that. Um, the other side of the coin, though, is there are also immaterial meanings which can be figured, right, which is the process of imagination. So Sartre has this wonderful book on the imagination, which has been largely forgotten, that what we can do is we can figure not just possible worlds, we can figure impossible worlds, right? Um, which we do in a purely uh, humanly imaginative kind of way. Now, so in other words, meaning is bigger than, um, in that sense, bigger than the material world. Um, And in the sense that that there's a lot discovered, undiscovered in the material world, um, there are a lot of meanings which are bigger than human agency. So, you know, and that makes it actually a very, very interesting concept because it actually talks about potentialities, not just, Uh, perceived realities, not just what's in our head today, but what could be imagined in possible and impossible worlds and what could be discovered in material worlds. Um, That means it's it's a kind of a very, it's a very generative and fruitful kind of concept. But, but that means also that it, it's still
1: possible to say, as, as, as you begin, as you were talking about astronomical phenomenon that we're first seeing and so on, it's still possible to say on the physical end that something not yet seen has never been meant before, at least that physical phenomenon. Is, is that right?
2: It's never been meant by humans, but there is a, a meaning imminent, that's imminent with the A, uh, pervasive through something which is there to be discovered. Right, so you know, one of the things is, you know, look, uh, is what do we do with the the natural world, which is bigger than us as as persons? You know, we can't say that the world is only as big as what we can think. That's actually the Descartes, the Cartesian position, and it's effectively the Kantian position as well. So a lot of philosophy has said um, that the the material world uh, ends with what we conceive. Well, you know there's a kind of a, a realist view of science, which says that it's discoverable. And in fact, that's the Lockean view. The Lockean view is there's a material world out there and we are very much constructed by that material world. And as we find out more, the construction continues. So, you know, um, on the other hand, you know, the great um, the, the, going back to the what Descartes and Kant were right about, is there's a lot of potential in our figuring. We can imagine possibilities which might later be discovered. We can also imagine in fiction and we can imagine um, uh, impossibilities as well. There's a whole philosophy um, about <laughs> impossibility now, which is kind of interesting. We, we can figure impossibility and it's called stories. It's called fictions. Actually, it's called a lot of religion, to be quite frank, is imagining impossibilities. <laughs>
3: right. so. and, and of course, um, uh, Bill's point, you know, it has material reality in history because these kinds of discoveries have haven't happened, and that's why in almost every uh, educational setting or almost every workplace setting, innovation and creativity are driving terms. You know. Uh, People are encouraged, humans are encouraged uh, to invent, to create, to explore, to discover. These are the words we use uh, in uh, education and in achievement across all domains because we know it's happened in the past and we know it's possible in the future. So as Bill said, meaning becomes uh, more fluid in its understanding and the way, and that's why we wanted to use a broader term that allowed us to uh, capture that dynamic.
2: I have a bit of a um, unhealthy uh, interest in um, in uh, religious examples. Oh. <laughs> um, my religious example is um, um, uh, we, we very fruitfully imagine virgin births and rising from the dead. Um, in a very powerful kind of way, which have been impossibilities. Uh, but our imagination took us in that direction. But then again, um, it may well be possible that um, with a little bit more scientific work, uh, virgin births do become possible. All we're going to do is create a... Uh, yeah, yeah, we're working on that. The science of it. But, you know, I'm sure there's many a, an um, many a advocate yeah. of, a, of transsexuals, uh, transsexual stuff who can imagine how um, virgin births are a good idea, and they may be happening sometime soon. Um, maybe not that soon. And um, there are people who are, are trying to extend human life, uh, such that there may be everlasting life. So these are these are kind of examples of you know imagination of impossibilities. But there's no impossibility which is definitively impossible.
3: Right. So you know, in the in the two volumes that you've read, um, all those historical and ph- philosophical uh, vignettes. Was about demonstrating the reasons why meaning was as it was at some particular point and why uh, they were right or wrong at that point and the kind of uh, changes that have occurred over time. So that's the play between the grammar of the multimodal, you know, and uh, how meaning is manufactured and the genesis in both theory and science and historical moments.
1: And that, that's a wonderful sort of usefulness of the term meaning because it it literally does cover all of those many vignettes that are in the two volumes and, and so many more that you can think of and others that you've brought in in more recent publications. I, I, I want, though, to continue to, to press at this issue of, of what meaning actually is because as you're talking here about impossibility and as you talked earlier uh, there, Bill, about participation, I, I, I again, kept hearing a difference between there's something available, there's there's a text that's been published, there's an object that's been formed, and there it is. That would be, let's say, the communication. And then there's the interpretive and representative acts on both ends, which appear to have a lot of a mental life to them. So this is where I started thinking about that more ideal setting. And I wonder if there is a difference in the form as it is used. I think you, what, what did you, sight was one of the words you used there. So as you see mentally, as you speak to yourself mentally, as you maybe even write, I've often said to people, and there's this wonderful short story which I've not been able to rediscover that I read in the New Yorker where um, the, the whole gist of it was essentially two people some 10, 15 years after they were, uh, did their MFA in creative writing, met. And they were the only two out of that class because the people had kept in touch who really were, let's say, professional writers. And the one was hugely successful, of course, and the narrator was, was not, was just sort of scraping by. And she said to herself that the successful writer really wasn't a writer. And the best writer of the whole group was somebody who wasn't writing now anymore at all, as far as she knew. Yeah, and and that was a moment for me where I I've thought and I've thought this often, and I even use this in my work together with scientists helping them write. I say you can write without pen and paper, <laughs> and and okay, so this is this is a long anecdote and, and aside, but I mean I mean my point is 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 there a difference then in the forms of meaning? let's say, just speech, to take a good example, as you use it in your head, or as you actually use your vocal um, organs to produce what we consider
2: speech? I mean, one of the important points is that we've also, we've fetishized written text a little bit larger than that, we've fetishized language, Uh, we've fetishized fetishized cognition as well. So what we are in the world, the meanings we have in the world are also in our bodies, you know? We, we 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 and a lot of those are visceral um animalistic reactions to things, which is crying and laughing and feeling pain and feeling sadness and whatever, which are much bigger than much bigger than cognition. We feel them in our whole bodies. But also we have these prostheses around us where the objects around us meaning mean something to us and our bodies and our minds because the objects are there. Um so you know, we've got meanings in spaces, the kitchen as compared to the bedroom. We've got meanings in objects. What does a, a wedding ring mean? Or what does a cup mean? Or what, when we see it, it tells, you know, if it's an empty cup, it tells us something that's happened. So, in other words, th- th- those things that we mean are not just cognitive, they're material, they're embodied, um, they're imminent in the world. So, in other words, there isn't actually a good, clear borderline between what we say in the world and our bodies. And the materiality of that world because those things point to each other if you see what i mean Um, they point both ways
3: but you know having stories in your head uh, does not mean that you can then write those down because writing uh, has had very particular forms we call them genres or a very particular pathways uh, to getting to somebody else outside of you know you you yourself i mean uh, to, to break those uh, canonical things that have been put into place again by the um, gatekeepers of writing, <laughs> you know, whether they're journals or publishers or, uh, or, or anything of, of that kind. You know, you had Ulysses who tried to ride in a different kind of, uh, not Ulysses, sorry. Um, Joyce. James Joyce wrote Ulysses as an example of something else you could do. And people now, too, are also trying to break those genres and get what's in their head on paper. But there's an infrastructure, an ecosystem that says, you know, um, romantic stories will sell science fiction will communicate uh, this memoir will turn into a movie again we have the gatekeepers around that so it's not just simply about what's in what's in your head and the possibility of turning that into co- some kind of artifact uh, because um, all through history uh, there have been uh, context and ecosystems for that Uh, production of meaning having power or not having power Um, and that's a bigger story of course about you know um, how people are allowed in and out of meaning making spaces beyond the individual and beyond the family into public spaces and we started talking earlier that this moment now has become even more complicated than ever before because You can produce what's in your head easily without anybody stopping you from getting it to a lot of people, right? Uh, So that's a a very different kind of moment. And what does it mean for us? What kind of satisfaction does it give us? What kind of effect, what kind of damage can we do when there are no no guardrails, for example, about what you want to express and what you put in another space, whether it's uh, violence or Pedophilia or whatever, you know, or, you know, it's so easy to do now uh, in this particular kind of context. So the manufacturing of meaning uh, now is, uh, what's the word, democratized, you know, in a sense. Uh, well,
1: this gets back to that uh, issue of uh, that I was I was raising of communication being so large now. I mean, if we took that participatory. Um, sort of process that goes on that that bill described for us in communication in the middle the available making the public making of of whichever meaning you've you've decided to create i mean at the moment mary as you're describing we we have like a primordial genre pool out there in digital space because it's not even clear as to you know what some of the functions what some of the purposes were behind necessarily to 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 be more precise in my language necessarily what was created there
3: yes and you know it's leaving behind all those traditional things that have mattered to us our kindergartens our uh, elementary schools our high schools our universities our colleges you know they're sort of stuck in ways of uh um making meaning of reproducing meaning, of circulating meaning uh, in very uh, traditional narrow ways with uh, you know hierarchies of accessibility to that meaning and high, uh, hierarchies of distribution. And I think right this moment, that's one of the issues that we've got to focus on, you know this gap, the growing gap between consuming and producing meaning making in a multimodal way, in, in the in the digital world and presuming consuming and and producing meaning in education within its formal and semi-formal context that's the challenge we have at the moment uh, which uh, remains very difficult for us as as humans
1: to to be wrapping up um, our topic here today was well meaning itself <laughs> and 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 what it is and maybe each of us might just sort of capture a little bit of what they took in um, this idea of, well, how might we put our finger upon it? Who, if, if, if somebody came along to us and said, well, technically, what do you mean by meaning? What what might it be that we say it is that that meaning actually is, especially in, in light of what we've just heard and, and, and discussed here? And I suppose I'll start, since uh, here I am <laughs> already speaking. Um, the meanings that are out in the world and in us as being linked and pointing toward each other. And, you know, a form that someone might shape and clay and the image in the, and the form itself, not image. Let me, let me be precise in how I speak, the form of it as it feels perhaps in their mind or in their consciousness that these are, deeply connected and need not be separated out. It's not like you need to have a guide as to how to make pottery and a book that's published and follow some sort of instructions necessarily to be excellent at making pottery or at least to enjoy it or to make pottery that means something to at least you in a representative form. So I suppose what I'm, I'm getting at is that, yeah, there's, there's a complex and, I suppose, at the moment, as I'm trying to say it, hard hard, uh, relation to describe between what meaning is somehow internally and how it then ends up looking out there in the world. And the last thing I'd like to say in that respect is I still firmly believe in this idea that it's possible to write in your head. I think um, what Mary was saying there about the idea that we've got genres, we've got gatekeepers, there's certain forms and things that need to be kept to. It either gets rejected or accepted. All of that is true, no doubt. And much of your work has shown that meaning is no simple thing. There are, there is a context, for example, to take one entire function. So we can't sort of esoterically abstract these things and just say, well, on a philosophical level, there is no philosophical level. There's the whole level. There's no other, but, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that, th- that it is possible to train which sort of words am I using right now, the sort that I would speak or the sort that I would write. So, for example, if a, if a scientist is writing about some particular research focus at the moment, they may think presentation wise to their colleagues or they may think journal wise to their larger community and their thoughts start to head in different directions and the way they're manipulating the words even in their minds are different. So in that vague sense, I suppose I'll hand over to the next one of you. (laughs)
2: Well, look, I I would, you know, what we've tried to do is if you like, build a build a picture of meaning practices. So our forms are, we've got a catalog of different, different types of meaning practices in the sense that there's text and there's image and there's space and there's object and there's body and there's speech and there's sound. Um, we built this kind of catalog, if you like, <laughs> of these things that we do. And what we do in all of those things is we mean the same things, but in somewhat different ways constrained by the media. But then the second question we ask is, or well, the second kind of macro question we ask is, okay, if we're meaning in all those things, what are the aspects of meaning which are shared? Reference is we're talking about something. Um, uh, agency is there's action involved in in the somethings in the world, and how do we how do we um, you know what kind of actions are those? Um, structure is we actually arrange that stuff. Um, in a distinctive form. You know, a book has a beginning and an end and words in the middle. So does a paragraph. Um, um, An image has borders, but, you know, you might put it in a gallery. So we can build an account of of the structuring of meanings. Um, Context means, okay, they they always refer to stuff in the outside world. Interest is there's a purpose. So if you like our kind of um, way of um, outlining a map of meaning if it is to actually across these two dimensions is to build this taxonomy of the aspects of meaning so if you like it it then becomes a composite picture where those forms cross over with those functions so that's our kind of way of building um a kind of a a definition which is a map
3: right and beyond that um, the digital what we've said about the digital affordances and beyond the map that bill just described if we could just go before all of that what motivated us to make meaning the key issue that we were exploring that is the understanding that human beings are different they come together in their differences different languages uh, gender sexual orientation their experiences their age and all these uh, differences the material differences impact one on what's in their brains uh, what they're sensing Two, the choices they make to communicate. And three, how they're interpreted uh, or not interpreted or misinterpreted. And always from the beginning, we were interested in something you can call inclusive sociality in the context of increasing diversity and increasing subjectivity. And how do we uh, get to some point where there might be a shared meaning and what are the things that, uh limit the possibility of the shared meaning and what are the issues in the context of the affordances of the digital uh and i think for humans to continue to live on the planet uh uh, in in an inclusive kind of way and in a way that looks after the planet we have to understand how we make meaning how we communicate meaning and uh and how we uh educate uh, people to make meaning in a way that is impactful and in the common good as well. Now, I, I have to add that because it's not just that we're interested in the technology of 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 the issue or just in the models that we might produce. Uh, it, it has to have, again, purpose and intent. And the three of us today have demonstrated how three of us can talk together around the same topic. You have something in your head that you want to get through. Uh, Bill and I, although we wrote these books together, also have different orientations uh, to the way we tackle the process. But through communication, through trying to make meaning with with each other, we come to some common understanding and some issues that are left for us to resolve uh, into the future or separately.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Mary. That is Bill Cope and Mary Colanzi's. This is goodbye from me to each of you. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks very much. Lovely talking to you. Great to chat. And this is goodbye to all my listeners, all our listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on All We Mean.